0: Eddie Fung moved to Texas in 1938, where he was learning to become a cowboy. He was the only Chinese-American soldier to be captured by the Japanese during World War II. He worked on the Burma-Siam Railroad, made famous in the bridge on the River Kwai, with Judy Young, Professor Emerita of American Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He wrote The Adventures of Eddie Fung, Chinatown Kid, Texas Cowboy, Prisoner of War. We're speaking to Eddie Fung and Judy Young. Thank you for joining me, Eddie and Judy.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
0: Let's start out with your childhood, Eddie. This is really fascinating. This, you were born in, in uh, Chinatown. You, you lived in Chinatown in, in, back in the day. Tell us a little bit about your father, who was a jeweler and a watchmaker.
2: Well, he was an illegal immigrant, as they would, undocumented, as they would call it now. He walked across the Canadian border as a manservant of a Caucasian gentleman. That's how he got into the United States. And then he did various jobs, and he lost a leg in a cable car accident. That's when he had to learn to become a sit-down watch repairman and a jeweler. That was when he learned the trade.
0: And your mother was a seamstress, wasn't she?
2: That was what she did at home because she had six children, and I was usually the thing that uh, most ladies did back in those days.
0: I just went to Chinatown a couple of weeks ago, and we strolled through there just like tourists. Can you tell me, uh, what are the changes that have come between the time your childhood and now?
2: Quite a bit, because the uh, new immigrants from the 60s did not have to undergo the hardships that we did during the Depression years and exclusion period. So they can't quite comprehend exactly where we're coming from because they never had to undergo those hardships. But the density of Chinatown changed drastically with the new immigrants coming in because it used to be fairly stable, about 20,000, 25,000 Chinese in the 12-square blocks. And I would suspect we're up to at least 60,000. No, it's still 20,000. Okay. Same density, actually. But uh, we lived in what's commonly known as cold water flats. You know, there's no hot water, a community kitchen for one floor, which may hold as many as five, six families. And that's the general living conditions that we all grew up with.
0: Judy? Could you tell me a little bit about how you worked with Eddie when, when you were writing this book? You must have done some of the research to, to help bring things to life.
1: I think it's always important when you do oral history to be well prepared to do the research and to know something about the subjects that you're going to ask the person about. And being that I am also Chinese-American, second-generation I was also born and raised in San Francisco, Chinatown, but it was a generation after Eddie. Um, I kind of had, you know, I understood his sensitivities in terms of being a Chinese American, and then being um, a historian, I had to do more research on World War II in order you know, to ask the right questions about what happened to him during the war, and particular about his POW experience um, in the war um so i think um in terms we we actually i actually conducted 75 hours of interviews with eddie trying to cover his whole life story and not just the world war ii period although that figures the most prominently in the interviews and from the 75 hours of interviews i transcribed all of it which amounted to about a thousand pages and then i cut and paste edited selected and whittled it down to 200 pages, but kept everything in Eddie's own words. So it's very much a oral history, a collaborative life history project that we both worked on.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Now, Eddie, you ran away from home at 13 and became a houseboy, and the family name that you mentioned is one that's familiar to me. It's it, nevious There's a famous uh, San Francisco... Uh, a uh, Chronicle columnist, yes. C.W. Yes. any relation?
2: I have no idea. Mrs. Nevius had been a nurse, and she's married to a doctor. That's all I know in Antioch. But this columnist, when I first saw the name, I, I, I didn't look into it, but I was very curious because that was almost one of the first names that I can remember from my childhood.
0: Now, this is what, what I found really fascinating. was You were literally a, a carpetbagger heading out to Texas. You packed your belongings in the carpetbag when you decided to become a cowboy. What, what made you decide to become a cowboy?
2: Well, I got interested in horses. And that sounds strange for a city boy. But when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I had a paper route. And one of my customers asked me when I was 12 years old, he said, I have a friend, C.S. Howard, who owns Seabiscuit, and he's looking for an exercise boy. Of course, I didn't know who Biscuit was. I didn't know who C.S. Howard was or any of these people. But I, it sounded pretty interesting, and I had to find out what an exercise boy was. So I ran home and told my mom, I said, Mom, I can learn to be a jockey. And she said, no. She said, I don't want you hanging around with those gangsters. Now, I don't know how she came to this conclusion, because Mom doesn't read or read English. She doesn't read the newspapers. But somehow she knew that racing was an unsavory practice. Trade or profession. <laughs> Trade. Mm-hmm. And... and it's really strange because one year later, when I was 13, when I got this job in Antioch, my next door neighbor, he ran a dry cleaning shop, and I was talking about the sea biscuit incident, and he looked at me, and he said, "Is your mom did the right thing?" I said, "That's not the kind of people you want to hang around with." And I looked at him. I said, "Why?" He said I used to be a jockey until I put on some weight, and he said, it's not the sort of thing that young people should be involved with." I suddenly realize how wise my mom is, even though she never leaves the house. But I, I just don't know where she gets her uh, wisdom.
0: Now, you did—you became a cowboy. Not to put too fine a point upon it you're not the the tallest tree in the forest. <laughs> Could you talk about, and being Chinese also, maybe not such a common, you know, you must have stood out a bit. <laughs> How did you
2: pull this off? Well, in a way, what you said turns out to be to my advantage. I'm not the tallest tree in the forest. And in fact, I'm probably the shortest tree in the forest. And so, and among Texans, you know, they're generally five feet, 10, at least six feet tall. Uh, they're big men. And to them, I don't present a physical threat. This is long before the days of Kung Fu and so on. You know, and a little guy is a little guy. And they just thought, in, in fact, they thought it was kind of strange. Here we are, farm people trying to get out of the rural area, go to the big cities. You come from a big city like San Francisco, and you want to be a farm boy like us. And to them, no, they just got a big kick out of it.
0: Now you're out there on the ranch and you learned a lot of interesting things. Curing ham, I found that. Sir? Curing <laughs> you, ham. Curing <laughs> ham. You talk about curing ham. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, at the ranch, you're basically self-sustaining, except that we were in the sand hills. Otherwise, we probably would have grown our own vegetables. But as it was, we usually had root, what we call root vegetables, like potatoes, carrots, turnips, things like that. Other than that, everything would come out of a can, string beans, beets. And uh, so... In the fall, we would kill usually two, three, four hogs, depending on how big a crew you have. So you have sausage, you have bacon, you have ham. Well, it just doesn't happen. You have to make your own ham and bacon, so you cure it. And they have these commercial cures. that they And back in our time, it was Morton's. And you inject the stuff into the uh, hams and or bacon, side pork, or whatever you want to call it, and salt, and let it cure. And, that's, and then you grind up all the other stuff, and you make sausage out of it.
0: Just like politics. Here you are. You're like 16 years old? Or 16, 16 years? starting 16, up. And you decide that you want to join the Calvary.
2: Uh, no, this was when I was almost 18. Oh, almost 18. Yeah. we're working. I was working at a ranch where we grew cattle and also raised half-mustang, half-thoroughbred horses.
0: Now, was this Joel Ranch?
2: This is a Joel Ranch in Quay, New Mexico. It's high Mesa country. It's very beautiful. You know, it's different from Texas country.
0: When you first... We're joining the the National Guard. This was at a time when a lot of it wasn't... Now we know everything that happens in the world all the time. It's in our face. But back then, was World War II, which was kind of unfolding around the rest of the globe, was that part of your awareness when you joined the National Guard? Did you have any idea of what you might be getting into?
2: No, because at the ranch, we're fairly isolated. We didn't have a radio, no newspapers no telephone, and of course, this is long before the days of television. So the only news you get is when you go into town, pick up the newspapers and start reading back issues. And uh, then of course, the, the men folks would start talking about things in general, like the world situation. Then you begin to get a glimmer. Okay, things are going on in Europe that's got nothing to do with the us and that's about as much as i knew about the world's affairs
0: so you 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 got yourself hooked up in the national guard and just thought it was a good job i mean it was was a good job for you wasn't it
2: yeah well basically you know like a social club back in those days and for instance in lubbock the whole battery is is from lubbock and then if you're from Decatur or Abilene, you're in another battery. So it's pretty much treated as a social club because a lot of the officers worked themselves up from the enlisted ranks. They would go through a course of studies and they would uh, act, you'll go from the enlisted to the commissioned ranks. So you know, you know people, they know each other from childhood so it, it's not the rigid military hierarchy that you think of uh, in the National Guard back in those days. It was more of a social club, a community thing, rather than the military thing. Wow. Now, well,
1: why did you why did you decide to why did you decide to go from being a ranch hand and a cowboy into the National Guard? What were you hoping to accomplish?
2: Well. See, we had two majors who came to the ranch buying horses for the Calvary. And they, were asking, they asked me if I wanted to be their houseboy. I said, you know, basically all you have to do is take care of our uniforms, do a little cooking for us. And he said, most of the time we spend our time on buying trips and playing polo. Of course, I didn't realize it, but if I joined the cavalry, I would be an enlisted man not an officer, but then the way he pictured it, gee, all they have to do is sit around and play polo.
0: Judy, could you tell me a little bit about um, researching into what happened in Texas back then? That, that couldn't have been, can't have been easy.
1: Actually, the thing that attracted me to doing a larger book about Eddie's life story when I was really looking for a World War II story at the time was because of this experience he had, I had never even thought about Chinese cowboys. And I thought it was intriguing that here I found someone who actually, you know, kind of picked up and decided to just be a cowboy when, you know, many people dream about it, but he actually did it. And there are a few books that talk about cowboys of color, but usually there are books about African Americans, Mexicans, and even Indians were working as cowboys in the 1930s when Eddie ends up in Texas. So it's it's those bo- books that I was reading about, but also there's quite a bit of literature on cowboy lore, uh, biographies of cowboys from West Texas, in fact, which is where Eddie ended up settling. And it's through those books that I got to confirm that what Eddie was telling me was not just a romantic notion of being a cowboy, but what being a cowboy in Texas really meant. And it really didn't make a difference that he was Chinese American. Um, He thought of himself as a Texan, as a cowboy. He was treated as a cowboy uh, on equal terms as long as he could do a cowboy's job. And despite his size, he could prove that he could carry his weight and do work do hard work as a cowboy and so he was accepted as as any other cowboy so the way that he described his first encounters with cowboys and his first jobs as a cowboy and the hard work and the kind of things that cowboys had to do they had to be a medic they had to um they had to also you know mend fences and 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 windmills and Stack hay, and there were just, it's just a lot of hard work. Um, so, what he had to tell me, I just needed to confirm that through the books that were written by other cowboys, regardless of their ethnic and racial backgrounds, and it pretty much uh, jived. And that's, that's, so my research was just to confirm that what he was telling me was not just a romantic notion, but actually what it was like to be a cowboy in Texas in the 1930s.
0: Fascinating. Now, once you get to, you've joined the National Guard, you do your basic training at Camp Camp Bowie, and you take place in some maneuvers that in Louisiana, and, and then you get to ship out, and there's this wonderful scene that you describe of getting a, a last cup of coffee.
2: Oh, <laughs> this was at Pier 7, San Francisco. We had- come over from uh, Church, uh, not Angel Island, where we had been barracked. It was Fort McDowell then, and uh, so we oh, we were all lined up at Pier 7, waiting to get on the ship, the USS Republic. And uh, we were standing in formation, and the Red Cross ladies had handed out cups of coffee to everyone there, and as soon as they call out C. Battery, we all set our cups down by our right foot, and when they call our names, they would say Fung, and you're supposed to answer Edward in your middle initial, if you have any. That's to confirm that you are who you are, and you're going aboard, and they check you off. And as I was going up the gangplank, I looked back, and I saw all these cups just lined up. I wouldn't say like tombstones, because, you know, we weren't that far away, and there were small cups. But I was thinking, there's a formation for you. No. With, unconsciously, we, we just did everything in the military way.
0: They, they sent you to Java, eventually, and it wasn't to necessarily advance the war so much as to be sacrificed. Tell me how that felt.
2: Well, you know, as enlisted people, you don't really think of it in terms of big picture. But I asked Lieutenant Hard, who had been the sergeant, who assigned me in at the National Guard. So we had a somewhat close relationship. And they said, Lieutenant, I said, what are we doing here? I said, we're an artillery unit. We're supposed to be supporting infantry. There's no infantry here. Well, he said, you're here because President Roosevelt has said that he will help the Queen of Holland. And the way he can help her is to defend the colonies because Holland by this time has already been overrun by the Nazis. And uh, so he said, he's keeping a promise that he made to the queen. But I said, we're not doing any good. He said, it doesn't make any difference. He said, he's doing what he thinks is right. And he said, for instance, if we're playing baseball, he said, we would be the equivalent of being up at bat and the coaches ask you to sacrifice at bat. In other words, he might ask you to sacrifice your time at bat to advance the team. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about people, not we're not talking about baseball. But he said, but that's the way it is. He said, Sometimes sacrifices have to be made. I couldn't understand why we had to be part of the sacrifice.
0: Eventually, not too long, uh, you you were trapped between, uh, in what sounds to me like a pincher maneuver, between Japanese forces and Allied forces surrendered. And this is a really, I mean, Today we're involved in all these wars, and surrender just seems like a really foreign concept. And could you talk about how that felt to you as a soldier to, to be part of a group that said, okay, we're done?
2: Well, you have to understand the, the equipment we went over with was basically World War I equipment. And uh, we weren't exactly what you call prepared for war. And of course, the Dutch also decided not to tear up the colonies because they figured after the war, we'd just come right back and business as usual without realizing that everything was gonna change after the war. And uh, so they decided after a week of fighting that that was enough. So they capitulated. Now since all military forces had been put under Dutch command, we're talking about land, sea, and air forces had been put under Dutch command. So when the Dutch handed down orders that we would capitulate, that was all we had to do. And it felt kind of shameful We always thought that we should have done more in the war. But when you think about it rationally, we could have sacrificed our lives and it wouldn't have changed the course of the war one iota. But as soldiers, you always feel it's a disgrace to throw your hands up and give up. We lived with that even after the war that feeling of not having done our best.
0: And and you spent, you were then in a prisoner of war, first bivouacked at a a racetrack, and eventually they put you on what they called hellship, what you call hellships to Rangoon on your way to help build the Burma road, railroad. Could you tell me what a hellship is and why you call it that?
2: So our first encounter with a Hell ship was in Batavia, and it was almost comical. The name of the ship was King Kong Maru. And it, it was a joke until they started packing us into a hole that was about 35 feet square. And there were 191 of us, and there's enough room for you to stand enough room for you to sit, but not all at once. There's definitely not room enough for you to lie down. So, at that time, we didn't have any sick men because we are still in pretty good shape. That's only about six months into captivity from March to September. So, we decided, okay, we picked out an area. That's where you put all your barracks bags and your knapsacks and so on and then the other places we'll try, okay, some men will sit and lie down for a while and then we take shifts. We realized, we didn't know how long the trip was gonna take, we didn't know where we were bound for, but as it turned out, it was only three days to get us from Batavia to Singapore. Well, that part of the trip wasn't that bad because it was three days and we had gotten underway almost as soon as the ships were loaded. But we experienced the hell ship thing in Singapore when we got on for the second leg of the trip from Singapore to Rangoon. They loaded us aboard the ship with about the same space. It was two decks underwater. We were in Kempo Harbor and in that part of the world, you know, slightly above the equator, and there's never any, what you call, cool part of the day or night. Even at nighttime, it's still in the 80s, humidity is still up in the 90s. We sat there for three days and three nights, and we we didn't know why. They didn't just unload us, but apparently they thought we're gonna get underway any minute and just kept us aboard. And they didn't rig up any wind chutes or anything. It just suffocating. And that was when we started. We broke out in prickly heat. And it was the second, or second day when I swore to God, if I ever get out of this, I would never complain about the weather ever again, hot or cold, because I had no control over it whatsoever. And it was only on the third day when we got underway and finally got some air circulating in the hose that we decided, well, at least now we can breathe.
1: But there were many hell ships that were actually Japanese transports that contained, that held a lot of American or allied prisoners, but the ships were not marked. And that's why a lot of people died when they were torpedoed or when they were bombed in these hell ships
2: right right we were always transported intermix integrated with the military and or civilians and the ships were never marked you know we lost 12,500 people on the railroad but it's not generally known we lost over 11,000 people from hell ship sinkings and Allied bombings.
0: We've been speaking with Eddie Fung and Judy Young. Together, they wrote The Adventures of Eddie Fung, Chinatown Kid, Texas Cowboy, Prisoner of War. Thank you for speaking with me.
2: Thank you for having us. Okay, Rick, I'll give you a little aside about Texans. Okay. This is not on the record. When we started working for the Japanese, loading and unloading ships, things are packed in 100 kilo bags that's 220 pounds that's heavy when we found out that we had to carry that the Japanese would say one man one we when we found out they weren't kidding that was when when I started carrying when I carried my first bag took it to the warehouse and dumped it off and came back the guy would look at me I said, Eddie, how'd you do that? I said, there's a trick to it. I said, I'm finding out what the trick is. So anyhow, after about five or six bags, I found out what the trick was. And it's it's not all that bad. But anyhow, the Texans respect you for what you can do. And I'm sure the word got around. Don't mess with Eddie.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, Eddie. <laughs>